Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Welcome everyone, we're so glad that you're here. That's Sarah Coronado. Can you thank her so much for reading for us this morning? If I haven't gotten the chance to meet you in person, I hope I do. My name is Jed and it's a privilege to serve as one of our pastors on staff. And as my friend Sarah just read out of our passage this morning, we are going to be an extended chapter. And there's this parable that Sarah just read from. And I'm just realizing that the table is not out here, and that's okay. Uh, (laughs) Thank you, worship and tech team. Love you guys. You are the best. Hey, I wanted to share really briefly about why Sarah took the stage this morning. Last night, uh, I texted our life group. Thank you very much, Brother Ben. And uh, I said, hey, I forgot to ask for a reader earlier in the week. And so if any of you are available tomorrow, would you please uh, let me know? And that text thread is usually very, very busy Uh, That text thread usually has several hundred notifications, it feels like. But there were crickets last night, and I'll have to tell you, my love for this life group really started to feel like it was waning a little bit. My commitment level was starting to go down, and lo and behold, they started chiming in about fears of public speaking and reading and folks being a little sick. And I wanted to say, well, I don't like doing this either, but never mind. And thankfully, after enough texting, Sarah texted me on the side and actually said, Jed, I'll do it. And I was so, so thankful. And the reason why she said she was going to do it is because the text thread was just getting a little bit torturous. And so, Sarah, thank you for stepping in to spare us from more people telling us that this would be very, very difficult to do. I'm so grateful for you. Well, it's kind of interesting that we would be in a passage of scripture that has this moment where this person who Jesus is talking about comes forward before this Lord, before this King, and he's very, very fearful. His fear has led him to an action. And so our life group, being fearful of this stage, is a really easy tie-in for some of what we're going to be talking about today. And when we talk about fear and we talk about inaction, I imagine that for every single one of you, you have encountered a moment in your life or perhaps you are at the precipice right now of a decision that you would need to make, but fear or concern is holding you back in some way. This past weekend, our family went out camping We had a really good time. We went on Friday, and uh, at one point in time, one of my boys, my oldest son, came hobbling over. We were sitting around the fire, and he said, Dad, my ankle. Dad, my ankle. 
And so I'm getting a little bit concerned. And as he gets closer, I say, Thad, are you okay? And he hobbles down and he takes a seat next to us around the fire. And I'm like, Thad, what happened? And then he said, April Fool's. Oh my goodness, you guys, I'll tell you, apparently in my household, our kids were telling Mallory that dad doesn't celebrate April Fool's. Uh, They were going on and on the entirety of that day. I could not take anything that they said seriously because it was an April Fool's joke. And when I started this message just a few moments ago, talking about how we were going to be sharing about fear and that holding you back from doing something, that really was an extended April Fool's moment. You see, it'd be really easy to take this passage of Scripture and immediately make it about us and our fears or our angst and the stuff that's getting in the way of what God is calling us toward. But I don't think you need a motivational message about that, even though we can absolutely go in that direction, because I think there are other reasons why Jesus shared this parable. And so your first fill-in-the-blank, you can ask yourself this question, where is the motivation? And if we kept talking about fear, we could say that fear is a great motivator. But when I ask where is the motivation, I am particularly trying to understand why Jesus would choose to share this at this point in time. In other words, what's the motivation for him deciding that he would share this parable that we could easily just make about stewarding things and not being scared. So Sarah started out in verse 27, and she said these words that they were heading toward Jerusalem. Excuse me, verse 19. As they were listening to this, he went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He's heading toward Jerusalem, and they're wondering what's going to happen next. And so they think that the kingdom of God is going to appear immediately. So that's your next fill in the blank. And after that point, he then tells that parable, that story that Sarah read. And maybe you've heard that before, right? This person leaves to get royal power, comes back. The folks that are there don't want him. And yet he's asking, what'd you do with the money that I left you? What'd you do with the three months wages? How did you invest it? How did you trade it? And the first person says, I got you 10 times value on that. And so the king gives him 10 cities. And the next person says, I got five times value on that three months of wages. And so he says, let me give you five cities. And then we ended with that cliffhanger, that moment where the one comes and what does he say? Here's here's that pound. Here's that three months wages. I hid it in cloth because I know that you're a scary guy. I don't think that's the thing he was supposed to say. I'm pretty sure that wasn't what he was supposed to do. And so let me go back to that point. Let's finish the rest of that passage. Verse 19, he said to him, excuse me, verse 20, the other came saying, Lord, here's your pound. 
I wrapped it up in a piece of cloth, for I was afraid of you, because you are a harsh man. Take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked slave. You knew, did you, that I was a harsh man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money into the bank? Then when I returned, I could have collected it with interest. He said to the bystanders, take the pound from him and give it to the one who has 10 pounds. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 pounds. I tell you, to all those who have, more will be given. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and slaughter them in my presence. Now, if we said that that was the Sunday school story that your kids were learning on flannel graph this morning, you might be a little bit concerned. You know, oftentimes when we see and hear and read, we look on and we're perplexed. Why in the world would Jesus say such a thing? And traditionally, we would look at this parable and we would assume that Jesus is speaking about himself. And he is speaking about himself, but in a surprising way, which I will get to later on. And so as we look at this passage, we've got to think about it first contextually. And you hear us talk about that all the time. So write down in your notes the word contextually. What are some helpful pieces of background information. We could speak about literary context or historical context. When we say something is contextualized, we're trying to give a sense of how it would make more sense based off of things that aren't explicitly stated. So I could say that Rams game was incredible. And if that were 2,000 years removed and someone took that statement of me saying that Rams game was incredible, who knows what in the world they think that I would be talking about. But several months ago, many of you participated in the national holiday called the Super Bowl. (laughs) And some of you were very pumped on the outcome of that Rams game. And maybe you were at a party or maybe you were watching that at home alone. But either way, when I say that Rams game, you can place that. Maybe 2,000 years from now, it would be a lot difficult to take that statement. But sometimes when we say things, there are even more specific ways that we want the people around us to understand it. So I could say, man, that corona. Now, some of you here, man, that corona, and you might be thinking about the last two or so years and the pandemic that we have lived through. Some of you might think, well, maybe it's that city that's just up to 15. When I say, man, that corona, I'm actually thinking about this time that I was at a wedding and I was enjoying a cerveza with some tacos. I put my lime in. I usually do this thing where I tip the drink up and the lime goes and I bring it back. Well, at that point in time, uh, for some reason, I didn't have it covered all the way in that corona. Man, that corona, it spewed all over the teaching pastor in Yorblin and he was already skeptical about me and that was not a good moment. But Jay and I, we laughed loudly. Man, that corona. Again, sometimes when we're sharing things, there are more specific ways that we want people to key in. 
So how is it that when we get to this place, we just immediately jump to thinking that Jesus is this person in the parable? Well, I would like you to look at your note sheet, and you will see that there are a couple words listed out there. You have the words Jerusalem, and you have the words Jericho, and then there's another fill in the blank. So we can start with Jerusalem and some helpful background information. We can know that that is an incredibly important place. It would have been the capital city for the kingdom of Israel before it was divided. And when Jesus was born, Jerusalem would have still been the capital of Judea. And then we have Jericho, which is about 17 miles north of Jerusalem. And as Jesus is telling this parable, he is heading through Jericho toward Jerusalem. But in that last fill in the blank, we're going to introduce you to a character whose name isn't there, but to get there, I want to show you the one time that he's used in your Bibles. It's in Matthew chapter 2. In verse 22 of Matthew chapter 2, it says, But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And after being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth, Nazareth, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. And you're filling the blank. Write down the name Archelaus. It's a pretty fun name if any of you have kids on the way. Go for it. Archelaus. That passage that I just read out of Matthew was about Jesus' parents, Joseph and Mary. And according to the Gospel of Matthew in that tradition, they had spent time in Egypt because Herod the Great had put the lives of kids at risk, and so they flee to Egypt. And then the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph and tells them that Herod the Great has died, and now he can return to Israel, back toward his homeland. But as he is going to take his family, Joseph and Mary and their baby Jesus, Joseph hears that Archelaus is ruling in Judea. And so he decides that he will go to Nazareth. So what does this have to do with this story? How's it connected at all? Well, Archelaus, he was one of three sons of Herod the Great. And again, Herod the Great, that ruler when Jesus was born that they had to flee from. And Archelaus was one of his three sons that at the age of 14 was sent to the imperial city of Rome in order to learn how to rule and reign. And upon Herod's death, Archelaus was sent back to Judea. He was 18 at the time, and he was installed as the tetrarch of that region, the ruler of that region. So he had gone to a distant land to get his kingship and had come back to that place. When Archelaus arrived, he was caught in the middle of a very difficult time. But people were grateful that it wasn't his dad anymore because his dad was pretty ruthless. And so he told the public that he would do his absolute 
best to rule in a way that would take into consideration all of the turmoil that was more than likely between the religious, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. But only a few months into his reign, on the eve of Passover, several thousand Jews went to the temple steps because they believed that Archelaus was not following through with his word. They thought that Archelaus should dispose of a member of the Sadducees who was responsible for the martyrdom of two Pharisees in the past. And so several thousand people came to the temple steps to cause a riot, an insurrection. And Archelaus disposed of the Herodian army to that place and 3,000 people were slaughtered there that day. Do you see what I'm talking about? 3,000 people were slaughtered that day. Archelaus went back to Rome to go meet the Emperor Augustus because he needed more support. He needed to come back with a higher title to be king of this region. And when he returned, he found out that in his absence, there was another insurrection and a local Roman official had sent over troops from Syria and several hundred more people were slaughtered. It had been a bloodbath. You see, when Jesus is telling this story, as he passes through Jericho, it would have been impossible for his hearers and their listeners to not think back to that moment in time that was only 20 years removed. And if you don't think that you can remember something very clearly from 20 years ago, let's just not forget there was a thing called Y2K. Do you remember that? Do you remember that we thought the, well, maybe you didn't, but the end of the world was supposed to be coming? That was 20 years ago. And if we say Y2K and you were alive at that time, you can transport yourself back to that moment. And as Jesus is telling this parable, as he goes through Jericho, the people who are listening Remember the story of a king, of a person who went to a far-off country to get his kingship to come home and found people who did not want him to be king. And it culminates in slaughter. It culminates in killing. When Jesus is sharing this story in Jericho, Archelaus' palace that he lived in would have been in near proximity. And so when we look at this story, even though it is easy to take this and just assume that this is Jesus talking about his second coming, and there are great ways that we can interpret that, what would be more historically sound is to consider that Jesus is speaking about himself moving to Jerusalem and tells this story to prove that he is not. Like who? Archelaus. So here's your next fill in the blank. We see differently when it feels like do or die. What's that phrase do or die mean? 
to have your back up against the ropes, to feel like you're left with no option but to go at all costs, even to the point of death. And if we did not consider Archelaus, and if we had not considered some of the context there, it would be easy for us to look at that story and in fear think that Jesus is saying our motivation is to get our stuff together and make sure that we multiply whatever has been given to us so that upon return we're not slaughtered in the presence of others. And even though we have that Matthew 25 parable, that parallel of talents, if you read it closely, these are clearly not the same things. So what happens when we're faced in a moment where it's do or die? Is Jesus speaking about us? Or is he saying something perhaps about himself? So your next fill in the blank, write the word chronologically. Chronologically. What happened before and what happens next? In other words, as Luke is writing his gospel, there are many, many things that he could be writing about, but he decides to have Jesus share this parable as he's heading toward Jerusalem And it's immediately preceded by these two scenes. And you see the words there, blind and short, and then another fill in the blank. So if you've read this section before, perhaps you've heard about that blind man who's sitting outside of Jericho. In Mark's account, there's another blind man named Bartimaeus, and it may be the same guy, but Mark places at the end of Jesus' time here. Either way, we have this blind person, and he's sitting on the side of the road, and he hears commotion, and he starts asking people, what's going on? He cannot see, but maybe there's more foot traffic than normal, and dust is getting kicked up, and so he hears that Jesus is passing through this place that he's probably sat begging for most of his life. And so he starts screaming out, Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He's calling out and the people tell this individual to what? To shut up. Be quiet. Leave this man alone. Jesus doesn't want to hear from you. He calls out even louder and Jesus stops the crowd And he has them bring this man to him. He asks, what do you want me to do for you? And this individual says, Lord, I want to see again. So we don't know what happened in his life, but we can ascertain that at some point he lost his sight. And it almost might be worse than him being born without sight because the fact that he lost his sight at some point in life meant that he must have done something really, really bad to deserve that type of of misfortune. And Jesus heals him. What do the crowds do? They think, that's pretty incredible. And this blind man follows Jesus through Jericho still. And then we have this next scene where we have another individual who can't see, but he cannot see because he is blind. He can't see because we've sang a song about him for the centuries. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. The poor dude, I just keep thinking, if for the rest of history, kids sang a song about you being short in stature, that would be a bummer. 
But we know that this story about Zacchaeus and him being short is about a lot more than just his height. See, he couldn't see Jesus, and so he climbs up into this tree. And as Jesus is passing by, he sees this man up in the sycamore. And he tells him, I need to come to your house today. And Zacchaeus is surprised, and so he invites him into his home. And the crowd, they have a different response to Zacchaeus and Jesus. The crowd, instead of celebrating, they start to grumble. And why do they start to grumble? Well, because Zacchaeus, he wasn't just a tax collector. He was a chief tax collector. He was probably in oversight of these people who were considered incredibly sinful. They were outsiders by vocation, by choice. And so when Jesus comes to have a meal with Zacchaeus in his home, the crowds say that this fellow Jesus goes to eat with sinners. Two scenes where people can't see. And Jesus, in some way, gets to them and changes the very outcome of their day and probably their lives. Why in the world would Jesus do that when he's heading toward a really important place? And to get there, we've got to start at the very beginning of this passage, this section that I was given to teach on. Again, from Luke chapter 18, verses 31 all the way through Luke 19, 27, but in 1831, it says this. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked and insulted and spat upon. After they have flogged him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise again. But they understood nothing about all these things. In fact, what he said was hidden from them. And they did not grasp what was said. You see, Sarah read from a parable. But that was after Zacchaeus. Which was after the blind man. Which was after Jesus sharing what was going to happen to him. In your notes, write in reversal. You see, if we had just taken that parable, and if we said, well, what does this parable say to us again? We can come up with all sorts of ideas about how our responsibility is to take the little bit that we've been given and have that multiply really, really, really big. I'm not saying that there aren't great things that we can take from that passage about stewardship, but when we look at it within the context and chronologically of what Luke is writing, we see that Jesus, as he is heading toward Jerusalem, knows that he is not going to be the king that comes in and installs the kingdom of God by means of force and power, all the ways that they expected him to do this. How is he going to do it? What's Jesus going to do instead? How are people going to see him? And we just got to skip a little bit ahead in the story to Luke chapter 23, when 
Jesus is hanging on that cross. And they're watching him now. And two others also who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing. And we hear that parable. We see this king come back, and he's really furious because this guy he was scared didn't make good return on his investment. And maybe over the years, you've been presented with a message that, by means of fear, has tried to motivate you to get your stuff together for God so you're not slaughtered in his presence someday. Now, here's the deal. However death happens, we know that it's coming. And so we don't need to just double down or emphasize death to get us motivated. And the disciples understood this. John, the beloved, several decades later, when he writes perfect love, casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment, knew what he was talking about. And this isn't to make light of judgment in the future. It's just to emphasize that more often than not, when we see intensity in the words of Jesus, things that we want to apply eschatologically, what we would call the end times, the end of all things, the epoch or the beginning of a new reality, more often than not, those intense things that Jesus said will be completely reversed in the most surprising act of his self giving. And no one wants to talk about how that is more than likely the culmination of what he has been doing because we want to fast forward to that time in the future when we get what we're hoping for, which is eternal life with him. And again, it's not to discredit the future. But today and back then, conversations about the eschaton, the end, trust me, they did not all agree about how that was going to happen. And to this day, we still do not agree or know entirely how that's going to happen. But what we do know and what we do see and what we can expect is that over and over, Jesus will surprise us with a reversal of the expected outcome. And if you hear Jesus on that cross saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And that doesn't set you aback in some way. Let me say that again, and would you just hear that for a moment? Father, Forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Here's your next question. What will remind us of the compelling love of Christ? And how will you and I and we respond? 
You see, if we took this message and the goal was to scare you, we'd really be missing out on something really powerful that we don't need to make more inspirational. The goal isn't to get you here and just pump you up so that you can be sent out again and then lose that in a little bit. The goal for us over and over is to remind one another of the compelling love of Christ, which at different points in our life really does fuel us. And for whatever reason, when we go through the motions and we get stuck and other things are vying for our attention and we're worried about the ways in our life we can experience growth and getting what we want, we forget the love of Christ is supposed to urge us on. So I'd like to show you a couple pictures to, to conclude us or start moving us in that direction. You see a little table on your note sheet. And go ahead and write down those words again contextually and chronologically. Because we spent some time this morning thinking about the context and the chronological placement of this parable and where Jesus is at. But at this point, when we're thinking about the love of Christ, I think that it's important for you to consider the context of your life and where you are and where you think you're going. What do we do when we believe or hear that Jesus loves us and desires to forgive? Well, here is one very straightforward thing that you and I can do. We can gather together to celebrate that. Let me put a simple slide up on the screens. Yeah, it's almost too obvious. Do you know that's coming? That's coming. Just in a few weeks. You know, last year, I shared about a sunrise service, and it really freaked out a lot of you guys. It really freaked you guys out. We talked about how we were doing our first sunrise service here, and there was like, I'm not going to that. You know what's wild? 330 of you showed up that morning out there and we watched that sunrise we we watched it symbolize the light of the world returning overcoming darkness and we're going to do that again in a few Sundays now here's the thing sunrise is earlier this year don't blame it on us <laughs> you, you know I know that it's inconvenient it's super early it really doesn't matter what age you are. It, it's just inconvenient to get up and to come to a service at that time. And It'd be a lot easier if we did a service at 10 o'clock like we normally do. But Sunrise Community Church and whoever of you are out here or considering to be a part of this church family, for another year in a row, we're going to invite you to hopefully be moved by the compelling love of Christ and gather at a time that is symbolic and representative of the light of the world returning. And, and we'll look at each other that Sunday morning like we did last year, and we will remember that if it were not for even just the idea, even just the idea 
of Jesus Christ and the resurrection, none of us would have been up at that time together. And it was really, really special to look around and go, man, this community of people with faith and doubt and questions and convictions and all these things standing there in God's creation in the sea. And remember, you know what? We don't know what in the world the weather is going to be like that day. We don't know if it's going to be super cloudy. Who knows? My hope and prayer is that you would decide to join us with your friends and your family and your little ones. And for one Sunday, you would be inconvenienced. And we would experience that compelling love of Christ. I want to show you a verse that is outside of Luke. As we're talking about not being able to see Jesus and Peter writes these words, I love it, in the first chapter. He says, although you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy. For you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. When we talk about where you are contextually and chronologically, did you know that a fuller way of understanding your salvation is to not just say, I was saved at this time. Now, one of my professors in college, when he was teaching through this section, he, he exposed us to this idea, which we find in Scripture, and it's really plainly laid out in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, where salvation is past, present, and future. We can use terms like sanctification for this process in between, but the reality, again, is salvation is past, present, and future. In other words, you could say, I was saved, but a fuller way is to say, I am being saved. Write that down. Write that down. I am being saved. I am being saved. And the reason why it is so impactful to consider that I am being saved is because it speaks to why my life and in its context and what's happening at that moment in time might look pretty funky because I am being delivered. I haven't seen him yet, but I am seeing the evidence of what it looks like to attempt to follow after him in my days. And when I choose not to do that, I still see the evidence of his presence in my life because I am being saved and he's the one that is doing it. Let me show you a picture of what we think and we want the investment of our spiritual life to look like. We want that, right? We want the 10 times over or the five times over, right? That's what we want our spiritual profile to look like. Let me show you another picture. Oh, no. That feels a little worse, right? You know what's funny about this picture? Can we show the next one, Mego? It still looks pretty upward. I mean, if that were your profile, that'd still be pretty impressive. What's fascinating about this picture is... You don't really need Jesus to have a life that looks up and down and then goes in a certain direction. I mean, I think anyone in the world could look at that and go, yeah, it's a pretty accurate picture of what life feels like, right? But we're going somewhere. 
right down underneath I am being saved, we are being saved. You see, it's not just an individual experience. There is a communal thing that's happening where we are being delivered together. Can I show you, perhaps, really more accurately, what this looks like? Yeah, much better. You know why it's important to see that? It's because we want to tell each other to do that or to experience some of that and go this way. But in the community of Christ followers, we actually need one another to say, that's kind of what it looks like. That's really what that feels like. Because if you're surrounded by Christians, they're giving you a hard time because you're not getting 10 times on your return or five times on your return and whatever that is. You're missing. You and I are missing Jesus Christ. We're missing him. So let me show you one more picture to hopefully accurately describe how this is really supposed to work. This, my church family, is the reversal. That's Jesus Christ. I'd like to invite the band up as we look on that picture a little bit longer. Just look at that picture. This is what it looks like when a community of people, for all they're experiencing or questioning or wondering and whatever's happening in their life at this moment in time and whatever happened before and whatever happens after, when they and when we look at Jesus the Christ, what we see Jesus do is not look for a way to go this way. We see him look for a way to go this way, lower and lower and lower. We see him looking to empty and empty and empty instead of get, 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 and gain, 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 gain. We see Jesus Christ model a giving of himself over and over and over again. That is the reversal. That is the kingdom of God. That is where you and I can find ourselves here today. So let me go back to the very, very beginning when we had that April Fool's joke about fear motivating you to do something. I hope and pray that it's not for fears about death that you would be inspired. I would hope that it is you and I being compelled by the one who knows that death is coming. Jesus knew it. And he went. And he did it. And he did it so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but live for him who died and was raised again. I don't know where you are at this point in your life. I don't know what you're experiencing. I don't know the context of what that is or where you're going or where you've been. But can I have you consider that you're really, really important for that crazy chart? 
you're really important. Your story and your name and your life is in that mess that God is reconciling and healing and making whole. And it's not always going to feel like that, and sometimes it's going to feel a lot better, but the reality is if you and I are honest, you put all of our stories together, it really does look that way. But when it starts to get different is when we leave this place and we consider that our stewarding of God's mission and what he calls us to do is to be people that over and over and over are giving of ourselves. And so today, if you're looking for something to do, you want to know, what do I do with this message? I would ask you to consider that picture and the reversal of you looking at your relationship with Christ and over and over asking God, how can I give more of myself? How can I empty out more? How can I look for the ways in my life, with my relationships, wherever I am, to embody that? Because that's what you did, Jesus. And if every single one of us were to leave this place and just even a little bit more consider that being our calling and how we're sent out, things would actually start to change. And they would change not in ways that are just quantifiable. They would change in ways that you would get to experience and see the compelling love of Christ. And so when you're thinking about that moment with your kids and you're losing it, and then you start to remember, wait, I'm called to empty out myself more. I'm looking at myself going, come on, Jed. Turn it around. Reverse it. Take his posture. And when you're in the workplace and after all these years, someone comes forward and asks you to pray for them because of something difficult that they're experiencing, there's a chance for you again to give of yourself. And when you leave this afternoon and you're with your spouse or your family, you sense an opportunity to, again, over and over and over. Would we be people who are emptying out for him? Let's stand together and worship. Hey, everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.